This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Please join me in welcoming Pete Johnson to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me here today and thank you to UX Australia for having me. It's uh, exciting to be up here and uh, not be just in the audience for once. Um, my name is Pete Johnson. I'm a product manager at Australia Post and I look after online parcel sending. Uh, previously to taking on the project manager role as the UX lead over the last few years as we worked on our parcel sending proposition for our customers and predominantly our contract customers. Um, We'll start with a quick overview of online shopping in Australia. Uh, Australia Post puts out this publication each year and it gives us a really interesting insight into what is happening in the buying habits of Australians in the marketplace. And it's interesting how much um, coverage we have. Over 73% of households are shopping online. 10% of our retail spend is now online. But what is interesting to see is that 10% doesn't sound like a lot, but at the moment we're experiencing, I think, around up to 30% or 25% year-on-year growth. So e-commerce um, in Australia, I think, is seen as being a little bit behind the rest of the world, but at the same time, we're growing rapidly. It's interesting to see when we like to purchase. Um, obviously, in between meals is the best times, and after dinner being the, uh, the peak period about when we like to uh, do our purchasing. And what devices we like to use. It's interesting they all sort of break up into thirds at the moment. But what's interesting to me is the fact that the mobile's year-on-year -year growth is at almost 30%. And that's where the future direction we see growing more and more as people rely more and more on their handheld device to do more and more of their online activities. If you look at it from a, um, how the online purchases uh, break up in terms of segments, um, I don't think there's a huge amount of surprises there. Obviously, department stores and fashion are big. Interesting thing is something like health and beauty is growing at 30% year on year. So that's a big growth area for online at the moment. And how we pay. PayPal, I was surprised how much PayPal is actually ahead of everything else. Um, and buy now, pay later is an interesting one. It's in our infancy at the moment. And uh, I was reading uh, last week how I think it's the Flexi Group have just struck up a deal with uh, MasterCard to get into that space as well. Um, now that a big credit card organisation is getting involved, it'll be interesting to see how that now plays out into the future and the growth in that area. And then we have the big five, the big five weeks. Um, these five weeks account for 15% of all online transactions in Australia. And they're really driven by click frenzy, um, the lead up to Black Friday, then Black Friday and Cyber Monday in those three, two to three weeks before Christmas. Um, I guess most of you know, uh, if you want to order online and have your products or your presents delivered in time for Christmas Day and get a bit of tree time before they're uh, unwrapped, um, you need to get out there and get a bit, on, bit early to uh, get them early. So what does this mean for Australia Post? Last financial year, we um, delivered over 222 million parcels throughout Australia, and with our biggest day being over 2 million parcels. So if you think about that, that's 2 million parcels that come into Australia Post. We then have to sort through them all, work out where they're going, put them on trucks, put them on airplanes, put them on the back of a Postie's bike and get them to you. Um, and that's one day. In that peak period, there's a whole range of weeks that look very similar to that. The beauty about that, I guess, from our point of view and my point of view, is working in head office, we're asked to go out to our delivery centres, out to our distribution centres and out to our post offices and help out and get on the front line with our people and with our customers. And it's a great opportunity to actually see how everything works at ground zero. 
So the area I work in at Australia Post really sits in between transaction and the delivery network. So you do the purchase online, it goes into our delivery network, what happens in between? And that's where we work with our merchants to ultimately fill this space. It's about creating shipments, printing labels, and then handing those shipments over to us so we can get them delivered to you. Um, we have a reasonable sized team working on this at the moment. Um, it's, I guess, headed up by the product team, which is a bit more business focused. We have a strong UX team of UX designers, content, research, and a producer. We have our BAs, back-end, front-end developers, and our QAs. And that's a bigger train. We operate under, the, I guess, the SAFE uh, methodology, so scaled agile for enterprise. I've heard it lovingly referred to as slow agile. Um, and I guess the main area I focus in is obviously with the UX team and the, and the, um, the front-end developers. We do have three API teams as well that make up that uh, back-end set, so it's a pretty big team. So as I mentioned with the APIs, we're fundamentally a platform play. And so uh, the big end of town, shipping large volume, they'll integrate directly with our APIs and those business services. However, our UI and the new UI we're developing is a gateway into those APIs. And we've also now got a hybrid version where you use our UI and do a very light integration, so it's low cost, it's a lot quicker to pipe your shipments into our APIs. So this is Parcel Send. Parcel Send's been in the works now for about two years. Um, it relies on the API capability that sits underneath it. And it's been a big project. And what I'm going to do today is really talk about some of the complexities, some of the challenges we faced along that way, and some of those learnings we got out of it. So it's probably the last you'll see of the application, and we'll talk more about the problems we faced. At the moment, we've had the actual application in market for about a year. We've got 2,000 merchants. They've shipped about 700,000 shipments. That's going to grow significantly over the next 6 to 18 months. Um, we're looking at having up to 10,000 merchants over 4 million shipments a year. And so we've got to be very mindful about how we create this application and the roadmap it takes so that we're scaling appropriately and providing our users what they need at that scale. And uh, reliability is a big thing in there as well. So a couple of the challenges we faced initially at the very start of the project was around research and time and access. Essentially, because this is linked, um, this development of this new parcel send application, it's actually linked to a big um, migration proposition and a migration project, which is going to take part, take, um, happen over a number of years. And so we was, had a delivery schedule that was already set for us. The developers were at iteration zero. They were already getting the foundations in place. And we were facing now having two brands. So Australia Post bought Star Trek a number of years back. And we were going to be the first application that brought these two brands together in the one application. And this meant we had to find double the insights. So two brands, two sets of insights for the one application. And we had limited research available to us. And we had to get moving straight away. So what we did initially was we just, while we were developing out what our research plan would be, we hunted around for as much internal research as we could get our hands on. We were fortunate enough that we'd done a bit of ethnographic research with one of our merchants uh, about two or three months previously. We went out on site for half a day and really got to see the nitty gritty of how they were fulfilling their um, e-commerce purchases in online in their warehouse and shipping them out. And then we also had, we were lucky there'd been a CX project done, so we could take a slice out of that. And then we also looked around for voice of customer reports. Australia Post being big, it does research, but it's not really user experience research. It's very much market research. So we had to grab all we could. 
and it gave us a, a picture of our users, a picture of their needs and their pains, but it was an incomplete picture. But that's all we had at that point in time. So for us at that point in time, we had to be really honest about the information we did and didn't have. And we needed to communicate that really clearly to our stakeholders and throughout the business and get their buy-in around our assumptions, the rationale we were taking and the risks we were taking and how we might mitigate those risks. Ultimately, if we, by communicating that up, those stakeholders were the ones that could change the delivery schedule if they really wanted to. As it turns out, they didn't want to. Um, and so, but at least they were on board with what we were doing and how we're going to try and mitigate those risks. The next thing we did to try and help mitigate those risks is we sliced our features as thinly as possible while still being able to deliver value both to our users and to the business. Obviously, we hear about MVP and I think it's almost become a dirty word. But... Um, trying to not get too deep into the development without having validation beforehand. And at the same time we were planning out our research, we now realise, well, we're going to have to plan our validation post-development. So it's a little bit cart before the horse, if you will, but it just meant we would still have to go out and make sure we were heading in the right direction. And if we weren't heading in the right direction, we were going to have to make some quick changes. And a big part of that was then negotiating to have capacity in our delivery schedule to make these changes and optimizations. So we were setting ourselves up knowing that Every time you go into user testing, into validation, you're going to find gaps, you're going to find problems, inconsistencies, things you didn't think of. And we knew that was going to happen. So we had to be on the front foot and ready for it when it happened. And that worked really well. And the business were really on board. They were happy for us to mitigate our risks in that nature. The next challenge was access. Um, if any of you have worked in a large organisation, uh, normally account managers or sales own the relationship with their customers and normally you have to go through those people to access the customers. And so we spoke with our stakeholders and everyone was full of promises and um, great intentions about all the people they could connect us with the merchants we'd be able to chat to, the broad range of um, experiences we'd get to ex um, explore and understand. And so we made those connections, we spoke to the account managers and the salespeople about this fantastic UX research program we had and how excited we were about it. And do you know how many research opportunities we got out of that? Zero. Turns out selling UX research can be pretty tough. And especially if you're coming at it from a very much a UX's point of view. And something we didn't do, but we soon learned we really had to do was we had to UX our, our account teams. We had to really get a strong understanding of what's value for them. Where does meaning and value and benefit lie for them? What are they trying to achieve? What are the outcomes they want? How are they trying to service their customers who are our old customers? And so we really reviewed how we were putting that proposition out. And then the proposition became, how would you like your customers to help us create our new sending application, the one that they'll be using. And all of a sudden, that's reframed it in, a, in a, a view that's really suited the account managers. They thought, oh, fantastic. That sounds like a good thing for me. My customer will be really into that. I can build a stronger relationship. We can build better trust. And the customer will like being able to directly influence. And the thing with um, contract customers who we're dealing with, you know, they're shipping more than 1,000 shipments a year. A lot of them are sending 10,000, 20,000 shipments a year. You know, they're pretty serious businesses. And they understand that influencing things is a really important thing. And if they can influence what you're doing to their benefit, they're going to be pretty excited about that. And so that was the new tact we took. And we also had to be creative with this as well, because not long after we started getting these sessions up and running, 
sales were soft and the organization put an embargo on any research happening with customers. So suddenly we were put on the back foot again. We weren't allowed to go and talk to customers. Only salespeople can make sales calls. So once again, we just thought, well, how are we reframing what we're doing? Maybe we're not going out to do a research session. Maybe we're going out to assist on a sales call. Maybe we're going out to do a product demo. Now, the product might just be some clickable wireframes, and we're going to have a bit of a chat about that. But it's reframing how you're approaching your research. And I guess one of the really key things we learn is we had a great plan. Our UX researcher, she was fantastic. And we had some really exciting initiatives we wanted to do. But the reality is we were going to have to compromise. And in the end, a little bit of compromise would mean we'd get a lot of insights, whereas no compromise would equal no insights. So we knew the way we had to move forward. The next was more of a design challenge. Um, and we're looking at do we use personas or do we go down the jobs to be done path? Um, obviously, with your research, you want to get out there. You want to collect as much information about your users as you possibly can. You want to turn that into strong understanding and directional insights that actually lead you to understanding and defining the outcomes you're trying to achieve for your users. What are the outcomes your users want to achieve? What does success look like? And so through our research, we identified uh, nine user roles, but these weren't personas, they were roles. They were, and they lent themselves to this idea of tasks and jobs to be done. And what's more, one person could fulfill a number of those roles as their job or even in a day-to-day -day proposition. Uh, we have uh, one of our merchants is a husband and wife team selling um, four-wheel drive accessories for camping. They're shipping 250, approximately 250 shipments a day. There's two of them. They, uh, um, the wife works in the front office doing more of the customer service. The husband's out in the warehouse fulfilling the orders. And these are two people managing all these different roles. So a persona wasn't going to cut it. And another thing we, we really learned about personas was personas are very goal and attribute focused, whereas jobs to be done is all about what is the task you're trying to complete and what is that outcome? What is the motivation and the outcome you're looking for? And at the same time, I'd picked up an ebook by Intercom. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Intercom. They've got a great blog inside Intercom. And the ebook's called Intercom on Jobs to Be Done. And this really resonated with me. It talked about the, I guess, the, the failings of personas from their point of view and talked about um, you know, how jobs to be done could actually work for them more efficiently and effectively. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not here to slam personas. I still think they've got a, a definitely viable proposition for different contexts. But for our context, it wasn't really going to work. And what I loved about what Intercom had done is they created what they called job stories. Now, Jobs to be done came out from Clay Christensen and some of his colleagues, I think, at Harvard. And it was very marketing focused in terms of, you know, selling milkshakes or Snickers and things like that. But it was great to see the work Intercom had done and to, to take that further into a product realm and a digital product realm and actually look at it from what's the situation, what's the motivation, and then what's the outcome. And this became a really powerful tool for us in terms of setting up for our design. So before we got to sketches or anything like that, how do we set up a foundation for us to meet the outcomes we're trying to achieve? This is an example of one of the ones we do. It's not rocket science. I don't profess that we're very good at it even. Um, but it really helps us get into the right mental space and to set up the right foundation, as I was saying. And another thing we really liked and also stole from um, Intercom, and you'll notice about this from me, I like to look out and see what out is out there and then grab it and use it for ourselves. And I, I think I've heard the term, you can just borrow like a designer or steal like an artist. I choose to steal like an artist. Um, it was our feature canvas. And once again, one of, this is almost like a pre-sketching phase of proposition of actually 
really nailing down what is the problem you're dealing with, what is the context of what you're doing, and what does success look like? What are the outcomes you're trying to achieve? And this, once again, formed a really good basis for us to move forward and actually get stakeholders on board and get the team on board about where we're heading with a feature. The next complexities we looked at were the fact we had two brands and a lot of inconsistency. So as I mentioned, Australia Post bought Star Trek, and actually many years before that, Star Trek bought Australian Air Express, so we almost had three brands within it. And so fundamentally, there's a lot of synergies between the two brands, but at the same time, there's different product sets, different business requirements, different operational requirements, different contract structures even. And they're quite different in their, I guess, their heritage. You know, Australia Post is over 200-year-old postal organisation. It has a strong community service ethic. It has defined things about what it will and won't do and how those things uh, happen. Whereas Star Trek is a, you know, a 30, 40-year-old logistics company who, have, who want to be more flexible, not necessarily always are, but they try to be more flexible to meet the needs of their customers. And so when it came to even business requirements, the Australia Post business requirements were very, yes, we need X, Y, Z. Whereas on the flip side, Star Trek, depending on who you spoke to, they could change a little bit. And that was something we actually used to our advantage in the end. Whereas if business requirements came a little bit vague, well, we sort of push them and nudge them in the right direction so they work for our customers. The other problem we were facing or the complexity we were facing was inconsistency. Um, when I first started in this logistics space about three years ago, I figured getting something from A to B without doing it yourself is probably as old as man is, as ourselves. Um, it's been around for thousands of years, that problem. So I figured with technology and so on, today it'd be a very homogenized process, that it would be very simple and straightforward and everybody would kind of do it the same way. Um, I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, we had this amazing dichotomy of the way customers would outwardly appear. So you'd have a really slick looking business, great marketing, great website, fantastically designed products. You go into their warehouse, they're still handwriting things and using carbon paper. I mean, that's from 30 years ago, it's crazy. And then you go way out, way out to the outer suburbs. We actually went far enough out where I'm, we're based in Melbourne. The cab driver said, I can't actually take you that far out. Um, but luckily we talked him into it. And we get out to this nondescript, kind of shabby looking warehouse. We walk in and it's got the latest technology. It's fully integrated and it's just absolutely humming. It's so efficient, it's amazing. And so there's this dichotomy of what a company looks like and then how they actually do business in the background. It can be very different. And then how they go about it can be completely different again. And actually, just while we're on that, merchants traditionally have had to bend their processes to their supply or their carrier. So if you were to ship with a certain shipping company, they'd give you a piece of software and say, that's how you have to do it. And you didn't really have a choice about it. And that was a big thing we wanted to go move back against and actually provide a lot more flexibility to people in the marketplace. So when you looked at the process architecture of a shipment, sort of that life cycle point of view, when you're up at a very high level, we could go, yeah, look, it does look kind of consistent. Everybody kind of falls into this configure, prepare, dispatch, transport, and receive proposition. That's fantastic. And obviously the key ones we're interested in are um, prepare and then obviously dispatch. 
but you won't be able to read this, but I hope it starts to communicate. When you got down another level of granularity into how they actually did that in their warehouse, things got really different really quickly. So this diagram shows how some merchants do it. The different colors are for the different user role. And it really goes through. And we're trying to connect up. When are they printing? When are they lodging? When are they picking? When are they packing? How are they doing that? And it just... It came down that everybody does it differently. Some companies will print literally 1,200 labels in one hit and then take those 1,200 labels and put them on the parcels. Others will print one at a time and move it through that way, and then there's plenty in the between as well. Some of them are printing four at a time because they've only got an A4 printer and the label stock's on, on um, four up A6 labels. So it's, it's like their whole process is getting driven by their printer. Um, it's really quite amazing. And so... This really made me think about this idea of Zoom levels. Now, Andy Polane, who has spoken today, gave a really interesting talk at UX Australia a few years back in Melbourne. And he was referencing the Eames's um, movie short film they did, Powers of 10. And it looks at this idea of scale, about how if you zoomed out by the power of 10 and kept going up and up, what would things look like and alternatively going back down. Um, jump onto on YouTube. It's about a nine-minute view. It's really cool. Um, and coming, I used to be an architect, so that idea of zooming at different levels is really prevalent in architecture as well. What is, um, how does this design response work at a city level, a suburb level, a street level, a site level, a house level, a room level? You know, you're zooming up and down amongst those zoom levels. And I think this became a really important technique for us into developing this product. So from a logistics point of view, what's that overall life cycle? Well, that, yeah, that kind of seems consistent. But as soon as we got into the warehouse, well, the consistency started falling apart a bit. Then we looked at pure fulfillment within that warehouse. That, you know, consistency was disappearing again. And then if you looked at the interactions that happen all in that um, fulfillment flow of each step, I mean, do they pack and then seal the box? Or, and when do they put the label on? And how does that work? So we had to do a lot of research and a lot of ethnographic research to really grapple with that, but then look at things at different zoom levels to find the patterns, find the gaps, and then work out some strategies we could to deal with those in terms of developing it into a user interface. Same with the UIs. So we're looking at our UIs within that marketplace and then our UI as well. How does it work in, within the, you know, as a group of applications that it has to operate in? How does the processes within the application work? How does that form work? And then at a field level as well, how does that work? Where are the commonalities? Where are the gaps? Where are the patterns? And that extended to language as well. Um, the CX research said that language was kind of varied. There's some very... Um, industry set language, but then people kind of use whatever else they want as well. And so we, we've gone for something that we hope and through our testing is understood. So that's fantastic. Um, a little bit of logistics 101. So an item is just say you've bought a pair of shoes online. That's the item. A parcel is the satchel that sits in with a label on it. A shipment has either one parcel or multiple parcels going to the same destination. And then the manifest is a whole group of parcels that a merchant is then giving to the carrier to send out to the consumers. And so we had to look at our language that way. And we also had to look at the contract structures that way as well. Like how are these businesses operating with Australia Post, with Star Trek at the same time? 
And another interesting uh, tactic we use, we started to change language around certain things to try and abstract certain notions, especially in the contract space where the word account was getting used for multiple things at multiple levels and it was getting really confusing. So by changing things, just abstracting to that's a cost center, it's not necessarily a location or a geographic spot, it's not a, a charge account number, trying to differentiate and abstract things to try and make sense of them as well, to try and pull them into a coherency as well was really important. Another challenge was the fact that this was a big migration process. And these are some of our legacy applications. Um, you can judge the designs for yourself. Um, but you can see they're trying to fit as much as they can into the screen in one shot. Um, and that's something we really wanted to move away from. Um, the interesting one, the, the red one, the Australia Post one, um, from a user experience point of view, it looks a little questionable, but from a capability point of view, it's actually quite amazing. The richness of capability that sits within this application that's now 10 years old is fantastic. Um, learning how to use it is a little bit of a challenge. So we're going to replace all these 20 legacy applications and develop just one parcel send application that's going to be the parcel send application for this organisation. And that was to help facilitate this multi-year um, migration process. And that's why the business was really pushing that delivery schedule. They knew they had to migrate customers. They knew when they wanted to get them off and what that flow was. And so we had to work very closely with that migration proposition. And we had to become the target application. And so we had to reach a certain tipping point before we had enough capability. And I'm glad to say we are now at that point literally last week um, where we are now the target application. So all new contract customers will be coming on to Parcel Send, which is a really exciting time for us as a team. But one of the interesting things before we started was one of the design managers at the very outset said, I don't want you to look at any of the existing legacy applications. Uh, and I understood this from a point of view that we didn't want to design the past looking like today. We wanted to design for the future. However, it didn't really sit completely right with me because I feel like you can learn a lot from those legacy applications. You just have to be disciplined in not repeating them or just copying them. And so the approach we took, and this was driven by one of our um, UX team members, was we set our foundation, so that's our approach, that's our job stories. We got our wireframes going, but then we internally validated our wireframes against our existing applications and tried to get some learnings out of that, see if we'd missed something, see if there was some better um, richness within that legacy application we could learn from. And then that facilitated one, you know, the first, you know, I guess, iteration loop in terms of, well, do we go back to wireframes? Once we were happy with that, Let's take it to user testing and obviously you go through that iteration process as well. And it really helped us to not design the past again, but to keep designing for the future, but, but learning from the past at the same time, which was really important. Um, a lot of you might have heard the uh, Henry Ford quote, you, um, customers can have any colour they want as long as it's black. Um, we were told that we could have any capability in the application we wanted as long as it existed in the API. Now, um, the API, obviously, through necessity, is developed quicker than the UI, and it delivers essentially a whole range of business services to a range of our different customers, from big customers to small customers. And seemingly small changes that you want to make within that API can have significant downstream effects. So all this data will flow down into invoicing, into tracking, or it can flow down into operations. And so one piece of data that you see over here and you're going, why on earth do we need that piece of data? It seems irrelevant to someone down in operations who's trying to make sure that parcel gets delivered to the right place at the right time, that's a really important piece of information. So it's really important to have that strong understanding of your greater system that you're dealing with. 
So once again, we learned to develop features to the ideal state. Now we learned this in our early um, research methodologies where we didn't know everything. We were gonna have to post um, validate the um, proposition we were putting out. And so we we're cutting things thinly. This had to keep happening. And we really encouraged ourselves as a team to always go, what is the absolute best this could be? We don't wanna be the best in post. We don't wanna be the best in logistics. How can we make this a world leading application? And that's a great aspiration to have, probably very hard to attain, but it's something that helped us to go, how can we make this better for our customers and our users? And then how do we slice that back into a set of releases so that we can actually release something today that will see value for our customers and for ourselves and we can learn from and we can keep releasing those slices of that feature to build up that experience. And that's been, that's been a, I guess, a strategy that's worked really well for us when we've encountered a number of different problems along the way, whether it's research, whether it's API capability, whether it's dealing with legacy applications. Um, and also, by having that ideal end state, what has been dubbed by the API teams, the gold-plated experience, um, we were able to sell in what we were trying to achieve, not only to the business, to the API teams, to, and to our key stakeholders, so they could see the direction we were going and they could buy into that direction. And what that enabled us to do is start to develop features and now start to influence that API roadmap. One of the great things we happened was we were doing a bulk import proposition, so CSV import. And the first cut was pretty simplistic. If, you're, uh, if a shipment had an error, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't go into our system. So you could either just import the good ones and back out the bad ones and fix them or start over. And, but we weren't happy with that. We didn't want that, that wasn't good enough. So the next release in incorporated a new endpoint for the uh, APIs, which is a validation endpoint. It was a super quick validation endpoint as well. You could throw a thousand shipments at this endpoint and it'd go good, 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 bad, good, 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 and it'd work out all the errors for you in about 10 to 15 seconds. And so what this meant was we were creating really good value for our customers on a UI perspective, but also for our customers in an API perspective, they could now use this validation endpoint to enhance how they interacted with Australia Post and provide a more efficient proposition from them for their shipping. So that was once again a great example where knowing where you wanna go and being able to sell that message actually really helped the, the advancement of the proposition we were coming forward with. Another one, we didn't have a product manager at that point in time. I was the UX lead, we had a UX team, we had our developers, and we had a head of the program, and she was doing a fantastic job. Uh, she was very outwardly facing, so she looked out to industry, to marketplace, to what the business was doing, um, where technology was at, which was fantastic. Um, she did such a good job, she got a promotion to GM, which is wonderful. Um, but we were missing, I guess, that product owner, product manager role within our hierarchy, and it was causing a few issues for the team. And we lacked a really strong vision. We kind of knew what our objectives were, but they weren't really solid. Um, and we, we were all really focused on delivering a focused application. Um, nobody, you know, we all hear about feature bloat. Um, applications are trying to become all things to all people and not really doing anything that well. That's not something we wanted to be. And we wanted to really keep a streamlined, focused application. And so to do this, we really needed a bit more foundation work around us to make sure we could follow that path. And another key thing was we really didn't have a lot of vision in, in front of us about what was coming. We could see three months ahead about what was coming down the roadmap and that's it. And so I think 
the team in general got a lot, wanted a lot more, I guess, I don't think security is the right word, but a surety and an understanding of what's our direction and where are we heading. So from a UX team point of view, a number of us stepped up and said, well, we're going to fulfill this role and we'll take on these responsibilities and let's try and develop something that will be really useful for us. So we started off by running um, a number of workshops with our key stakeholders in the business and the team to really lock down our objectives. And our objectives really became super important for us. Um, you know, this idea of flexibility. As I said, uh, UIs for shipping in the past have been bend your business to the UI, this is how we do it. We wanted to change that. We wanted to say, here's our UI, not only is it flexible and it'll meet you now, we want it to be able to be flexible enough that you can optimize your processes so that you can become a more efficient and better business. Um, it has to be simple. Uh, the people who use this can range from masters, degrees, MBA, logistics managers, down to warehouse workers with limited, inf limited education and even potentially some minor cognitive disabilities. So the usability scale on this is enormous. And that was actually one of the really joyful things. We did some user testing and we had a paper prototype. This is quite early. And we had one of the um, warehouse worker whose job all day was to stuff t-shirts into satchels. Uh, his name was Mickey. He didn't have a high level education. He was a lovely guy. He came in, he took his, took his user testing very seriously. He wanted to do a really good job. And um, the interesting thing was we got to the end of the session and he, he said, oh, is that it? That was so much fun. Um, and it was just so heartwarming to feel like that some of the work we were doing and validating the people's opinions, even on the warehouse floor, was really important to them and made them feel good about what they were doing and what they could bring to the table about what could influence their work. So. That simplicity has been really key for us. Speed is also important. Um, we want speed to come out of that simplicity. Um, ultimately, from a business point of view, the more shipments you can push out the door, the more transactions you can do, um, it works for everybody. Other things we looked at, so those top three were really focused on our application and gave us a lot of ability to say when a new feature came in from a stakeholder and they said, oh, we want to do this in the application, it enabled us to step back and go, well, does that meet one of these three objectives? And it helped us, it was the first stage in really helping us being able to push back effectively to some not the best suggestions or not the best requests for what people wanted to do with the application. Other things we wanted to get across were also access. We wanted our customers to access our products and services easily and quickly, and the business wanted to get them to market quickly and efficiently. We wanted to be able to adapt to our customers' needs, both from a technology point of view, but a product and service point of view as well. We wanted to be a partner, and it was important to be uh, one solution. So we're going from this fragmented, multi-application proposition, we wanted to provide one coherent proposition. The next thing we needed to do was develop our vision. And this is a statement that would help guide us as well. And once again, it was organized around, we organized it around a range of workshops. We got all, even the API developers who didn't really work on Parcel Send. We got everyone involved. And it was a great process to really try and dig into what would the success of Parcel Send mean to our merchants and our organization. And so we really focused on needs and problems of our merchants and then the benefits and reasons to buy. Uh, at around the same time, I was reading a book called uh, Product Roadmaps Relaunched. Sorry, don't be fooled by the glasses. Um, 
and it has a fantastic value proposition template methodology within it. And this actual book is actually a really good resource. If you're interested in some product management and that side of things, it's a really um, effective and almost how-to guide about working through different stages of the proposition about developing your roadmap. And from a workshop point of view, for people who didn't naturally write visions and weren't naturally inclined to write vision statements, it was a great way to get that process started in the workshops. This is also from the book. It's actually like a pre-canned statement where you can actually start to work in that information that you've already gleaned into this statement to get you mood and get you into the flow of actually going and developing this statement. And so a number of themes came out, and it was great because we had really good consistency from API developers and support devs and support teams all the way through to the business and key stakeholders. And these are the five of the key themes there, which led to our vision statement, seamlessly fit merchant processes so they can send more faster. And then that sort of looks at how those themes fit into that. And the fact that we included our business stakeholders, we included support, we included all the teams, everybody had a stake in this, everybody had buy-in. And it really has had enabled us now to really keep our applications streamlined and focused. Um, reporting has come up as a key thing and part of the business is going, we have to have reporting in. And we walk them through the vision, we walk them through our objectives and they've been part of setting those and they can understand now, okay, this isn't the right place. So instead of us saying, no, you can't have reporting, we're saying, Parcel send is not the right place for this, but let's have a discussion about what could be the right place and how do we move forward with that need for you and our customers. And that's been a really important thing to enable the team to really come around and focus and feel more meaning in what we're doing. And it's also enabled that roadmap to get developed out. So we've now developed our roadmap out to the end of 2020. Now, obviously, the features we're proposing in the last quarter of 2020, probably not worth the value of the paper they're written on, but it's giving us a direction and we know that direction is going to change and as our user needs change and the business focus changes, we'll be able to adapt and move with that. But it gives the team a sense of security about where they're heading and what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to achieve it. And that's been really important. So to finish up, we faced a lot of different challenges along the way. And a lot of the key things we learned were all about stepping up and no one's ever going to work in a perfect system or a perfect process or a perfect business. And then you're going to see gaps as professionals and you're going to want to wonder why. Why aren't we doing that? We used to say, why don't we have a product owner until a few of us said, well, let's just do it. And let's step into that space, fill that gap and enable it for the betterment of the team. And I don't think it matters really where you're at in your career or your skill level or the gap you've identified. If you're not confident to step into it by yourself, grab a teammate, grab a colleague, do it together. Grab someone who's more senior than you, can help bring up your experience as you do that. It's a great way to broaden your capability and your experience and to create better experiences for your customers as well. And I think the final two big things we learned from this were the fact that always communicate. Always communicate with your stakeholders, always communicate with your team. Something we're doing now is, I showed you that feature canvas that's now been stepped up again to another level by our, lead, our new lead product designer into a, an experience canvas. And that experience canvas now goes to a kickoff meeting that has every stakeholder from support, the business, development, QA, everybody's there. And everybody works to fill that in together to identify the gaps, the needs, this, what success looks like, the outcomes. Research has a huge part to play in that as well. 
and it creates this wonderful foundation for us to really understand where we're at and where we're going. And having that communication constantly working, don't let yourself fall into a UX silo or just design silo. Constantly talk to everybody around you and share what you're doing and get them on board with your journey. It'll make your journey so much simpler and you'll be able to, and more effective, and you'll be able to deliver far better experiences to your users. And finally, always move forward. Um, one thing we learned early on when we didn't have the research we needed and we just had to keep moving forward. Make a decision, make the best decision you can with the information you have. Communicate the assumptions, communicate those risks, keep going forward, but plan in capability. So if you do make a mistake, because you will, God knows we did as well, um, we've been able to now go back because we've had that space, we've identified our risks to actually come up and say, you know what, we've got to push this feature off a bit, we've got to fix some things that are actually existing in the application right now for our users. And so that capability to constantly move forward I think is really important in developing a really great product. And that's it, thank you very much. Thanks Pete. Um, we have uh, time for some questions for Pete on that uh, wonderful case study uh, before we head out. So if you have a question, pop your hand up. I'll come over with a microphone so we can hear it and record it. Yes, hang on. Thanks. Hi, Pete. Uh, Hi. Just had one question. Uh, no, you were talking about uh, involving everybody on the team. I know one of the things that I've experienced and probably a lot of people um, in in the UX community is having too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm. Um, can you talk about sort of how you dealt with that or did you run into any issues with that sort of thing? Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think um, when you're approaching these sessions, having a clear agenda about what you want to go through and what you want to get out of the session is really important. I feel like if you walk in there and just say, oh, we're going to play this feature, what do people think? That kind of in invites chaos. Um, if you go in with a really structured approach, well, structured enough, you need flexibility in it. But I think, and by having a document like something like the experience canvas or a feature canvas enables that to be a more structured discussion. And if you have, um, and it can be a UX, it doesn't really matter who leads that discussion, but as long as they know, okay, research, we're looking to you to provide really strong input into around the problem space. Same with the people from support. Business, we want to understand the key metrics from a business proposition. What's the business challenge you're facing? So trying to engage those groups for their, I guess, their strength, and then hearing what else they can add around that as well. But I think uh, having some strong facilitation and a, and a good agenda to work through generally works well. And I think also these sessions are a really good opportunity to make, to enable people to feel heard. You know, people have ideas, people have thoughts, people have concerns, and they need to get them off their chest. If they feel heard, they can walk away knowing you've accepted that, you've thought about it, you've not shut it down straight away, you've taken it on board and you're gonna go away and think about it. And then when you come forward with your next, say, proposition in terms of the design, you can talk about why you did address things or didn't address things and how that's gonna work. And I think people are a lot more comfortable with that because they have felt heard, they haven't just been shut down straight away. So I think a big thing for us, and, and you know, some business people can be pretty bullish and so enabling them to get their bullishness out <laughs> and get that on the table, I think sort of softens them a bit for how you then move forward from there. Does that answer your question? Yep. All right, thank you, Peter. Thanks. Thank you very much.